Fred, what's wrong with network television? There's a, a sameness uh, about it, a sense of deja vu that uh, you're seeing the same things that you've seen 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And there is uh, no sense of the pioneer spirit. In a certain way, you're responsible for that because the legacy of NBC, ABC, and CBS is Fred Silverman. Well, that's not necessarily true. I think the legacy of uh, CBS is William Paley, who has been the continuity for many years, and the legacy of uh, ABC is Leonard Goldenson, Fred Pierce. I don't think any one man is responsible for the state of television. It's time, once again, to hear about one of the many nightmarish failures of our patron saint. It's one of the many televised follies perpetrated by Fred Silverman for induction. In I'm just going to jump right into it. Ugh. The Brady Bunch. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had... A show that, not unlike the Dukes of Hazard, is one of those that I just couldn't get into when I was living on Earth. Yes, the show has a devoted fan base. Yes, the show has stood the test of time in an endless array of reunion shows over the years. And yes, it's one of those shows that seems to be popular because of just how innocently wholesome it is. At least on the surface. Behind the scenes, however, was a whole nother animal, thanks to various stories of strife that happened during the making of the series that have long since gone down in show business history. Between various cast members hooking up with each other, to battles over questionable creative decisions, to the constant infighting between cast and crew members, the show, through some miraculous force of nature, somehow managed to not only stay on the air for five years, but also take those five years and repeat them relentlessly around the world to this day. When the show ended in 1974 and began its never-ending rerun cycle at the same time, everybody involved with the show thought that this would be the end of the story of a clan named Brady, and everyone involved would simply move on to whatever was next on the horizon. But then, something happened. The show quickly became more popular in syndication than it ever was on the network where it aired. So much so that the network that aired it was wondering to itself if it pulled the plug on the show too soon. And one person who did most of that wondering was... <sighs> I just can't get rid of this guy, can I? Well... Here we are once again, trashing some of the trash that Fred Silverman was either partially or entirely responsible for. Only this time around, we're actually not looking at any of his efforts at a place where he failed, but rather one where he succeeded immensely. From 1975 to 1978, Silverman was in charge of entertainment for the ABC network, and thanks to his efforts there, the network became number one for the first time in its history during those years. Part of the reason why was because ABC was a young network that appealed to a young audience. And as time marched on, with babies that boomed all over the country reaching their teens and twenties, Silverman, knowing when to strike while the iron was hot most of the time, not only greenlit shows that would appeal to young demographics, but also expand on existing hits extending their universes through various spin-offs. Combine prime time with ABC's growing news and sports operations, and the network was suddenly a force to be reckoned with in the 70s. One of those primetime successes that the network had at the start of the 1975 season was a variety show starring two members of a long-standing family in the entertainment business. Friday night is hot stuff with Donnie and Marie and their special guests. Donnie and Marie Osmond, a sibling duo whom Robin Williams once joked about being the first couple of Utah. I went, uh-uh, honey, no. There are only a couple in Arkansas. Both of them starred in the series, which debuted that November, and turned out to be an out-of-nowhere hit. And considering the 1970s was the time when the variety show format reached critical mass, being the top-rated one in a crowded field was considered a triumph, not just in the format, but also for the network, which began its ascent to number one slowly but surely. 
The show is produced by some other people that we got to know in our previous episode. That's right. This was one of the primetime efforts that were put together by Sid and Marty Croft, who, even though they had been playing at the kiddie table for most of the decade, felt as though they earned a chance to sit with the grown-ups. Relatively speaking in this case, because even though this was a primetime series, the network still wanted the Crofts to come up with shows that would appeal to their target demographic of young people. The success of the Donnie and Marie show prompted Silverman to come up with an idea for a future episode of the show. In the following 1976 TV season, Silverman was brainstorming about ways to keep people tuning in to Donnie and Marie. But we're not quite sure how he reached his eventual conclusion. Whether through channel surfing or through seeing how well it was doing through syndication, Silverman thought the time was right to reunite the Brady Bunch or at least four of the cast members, for an appearance on Donnie and Marie. That appearance took place on October 8th, 1976, and the audience ate it up like it was a reheated leftover. So naturally, with their success on one Croft Brothers series, ABC decided right then and there to bring back the Brady Bunch as an hour-long variety show. Oh, who the hell gave those people an entire hour? (laughs) Of course, this was about two years after the original series had ended. And while four of the cast members were willing to make an appearance on another TV show, getting the entire cast to come back for a weekly series was the more daunting task especially when it came to at least one particular cast member. All the Brady men have perms. That way our hair doesn't get in our eyes when we're fixing our bikes. It was especially hard to convince Robert Reed, a.k.a. Mike Brady, to do the show in the first place. After all, Reed was famously displeased with the material he was given on the show. His offstage feuding with series creator Sherwood Schwartz over the lack of quality control was especially legendary, stating in later years that even though he still got along with the rest of the cast, he really only took the job for the paycheck. And quite honestly, who could blame him? Fortunately for Reed, there was one major obstacle that made saying yes to the new show a lot easier. Sherwood Schwartz would not be involved with the production in any way. In fact, neither Schwartz nor Paramount Pictures, the studio that made the show, had any direct involvement over the upcoming series. The only reason why the project would even move forward in the first place was because both parties were aware of how well the show was doing in syndication, and that this extra exposure might have helped increase those numbers. One other person who saw potential in the project was a young executive who, coincidentally enough, transitioned himself between both ABC Television and Paramount Pictures around this time a then 34-year-old, Michael Eisner. Eventually, Schwartz gave ABC and the Croft Brothers permission to use the characters in this new enterprise, agreeing that, at the very least, a based-on-characters-created-by credit would be used at the very end of the show, which it was. The other reason why Reed decided to say yes to this show, despite being very much anti-Brady in the past, was a rather odd sentiment. According to the memoir Growing Up Brady by Barry Williams, a.k.a. Greg Brady, Williams recalls that Reed proclaimed to be terrible at voice and dancing even though he studied both. Yet, after Sid and Marty Croft explained the show to him, he thought, quote, What fun! This will be a hoot! End quote. Either that, or if his experience on the original series was any indication, they wheeled over several dozen armored cars full of money to convince him to do it. Regardless of how or why he said yes, the gears were in motion, and eventually, all eight Bradys plus Ann B. Davis and a handful of appearances as their maid Alice agreed to do the show. That's right, all of them. Except for one. Unfortunately, one family member didn't want that chance and refused to participate. But thanks to some creative casting, you won't even notice. Had to slip that joke in there. Contrary to popular belief, Eve Plum, a.k.a. the original Jan Brady, actually wanted to do the show. Just not every single one of them. This is due in part to the fact that she was busy with other TV movie-related projects at the time, and that adding the new Brady show might make her schedule a little cramped. Initially, Plum wanted to do half of the episodes that were ordered, but ABC dug their heels into the ground telling Plum that it was an all-or-nothing deal. So with that... Plum wished the others well and otherwise amicably backed out of the production. 
complicating matters was the fact that all the deal-making for the show took place in October of 1976. The show was scheduled to premiere later that November, so producers had to act fast to find America's next Jan Brady. After going through approximately 1,500 potential pseudo-Jans, the producers eventually came across their Countess of Monte Cristo, Jerry Lee Rochelle, spelt with a G, was already an established young actress when she agreed to fill in for Eve Plum, already logging appearances in commercials and on shows like Gunsmoke and The Bold Ones. More importantly, Rochelle also had experience not only working in small musical acts, but also in various stage shows and musicals, including as one of the Von Trapp children in a road company performance of The Sound of Music. As this was a show that involved singing and dancing, Rochelle managed to check off enough boxes in the producer's eyes for her to get cast as the person who would forever be known to the Brady fans, old and new, as Fake Jan. Otherwise, the show was able to get most of the band back together, so to speak. Now all that was left to do was to present the Bradys in a way that would not only showcase the full range of their talents, but also do so in a way that would fully exploit just how viable the variety show format had become in the 1970s. And considering it was Sid and Marty Croft at the helm, the same duo who four years from that point would bring us this... How about your knuckle sandwich? It looks like we're going to be in good hands. The set design might go down in history as one of the most illogical ones ever designed for television. Yes, even more insane than Super Trains. But at least this didn't go around breaking budgets. While there were standard set pieces that looked just as over the top as any other variety show at the time, The Cross found a way to one-up them all. They did so by installing a nearly 50,000-gallon swimming pool on the soundstage. The sole purpose of the pool was so that the Crofts could highlight a synchronized swimming group alongside the Bradys for some of the show's production numbers, a group that would later be dubbed the Croftettes. Because when you think of a family from suburbia, you immediately think of synchronized swimming, as one does. Of course, no insane TV set pieces or reluctant cast reunions would be complete without people to tell the Bradys what to say. The writers that the Crofts hired to pen the bunch's best words include Broadway veteran Ronnie Graham, who at that point in his career wrote several episodes of M.A.S.H., but perhaps more significantly, a young 28-year-old scribe by the name of Bruce Gerald Valanche. A sadist. A masochist, a pyromaniac, a zoophiliac, a serial killer, and a necrophiliac are having tea. Someone who's had a storied career long after this show ended, for sure. But the new Brady program wound up being one of the first TV shows he ever wrote for. And once we hear about how cheesy some of it is, you'll be able to pick the sketches that he wrote from a police lineup. Everything was ready to go, but there wasn't any time to waste. The show originally aired as a special on Thanksgiving weekend, but the show itself was completed just six days prior to that air date. And we will soon see just how much the audience got cascaded in a polyester avalanche. After the break. If the lady's going to be a sweat hog, she might as well learn from the best. The newest sweat hog is Julie's sister on Welcome Back, Cotter. Then the 12th precinct waits for the world to end. You have seven hours and 15 minutes left. (laughs) I think I can just make it. Barney Miller, right after Cotter. Tomorrow at 8 on ABC. And now it's time for the moment that we've all been waiting for. For those who haven't been listening for the past few weeks, we've been doing a contest on Twitter to see who would win a collection of Showtime TV shows from the past TV season. 12 DVDs covering 16 shows to be exact. But first, let's take a look at our runners-up who are each going to receive a random Netflix documentary series. And the names I'm going to read off are just Twitter handles. I do not want to give away anybody's names, so let's just be careful here. Our runners-up are at Daniel Shin Math at Gina A0430 at That Week in SNL at King Dog 411 and finally at Mysticism88. We reached out to you and hopefully you get your prizes very soon. And now the grand prize winner goes to 
at Chronicles Podcast, spelt uh, with a Z, actually. Uh, C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-Z-P-D-C-S-T. And I've actually heard their show. It's pretty good. But congratulations, Chronicles Podcast. You are going to be the one that gets the Showtime DVD set. It's on the way, and we certainly hope that you enjoy every single bit of it. And now, here's a quick word from one of the people that's paying our bills as we speak. The Fires of Telehell are presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. November 28th, 1976. Jimmy Carter was just elected 39th President of the United States. Music group The Band had just performed their final concert in San Francisco a few days earlier on Thanksgiving Day. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central and Mountain. We begin with a combination of sequins and acid trips as we see, who we assume are the Croftettes, kicklining the show into gear, followed immediately by a warp speed montage of publicity photos of the cast, while the oh-so-familiar strains of the Brady Bunch theme song rang loud for the first time in two years. With kazoos. Hey, at least it sounds more dignified than if it was being played with a theremin. It's through these credits that we see how much the cast has grown up and matured in the two years since we last saw them. Jan especially has matured so much, you'd think she was a totally different actress. Oh, wait. Now that we got through the credits, we get to see the Bradys and fake Jan perform their opening number where... Oh my god! You got the cutest little baby face. There's not another one could take your place. Baby face. And by the way, I'm not oh my godding the singing. They're actually performing quite well given the circumstances. But I swear, by the ghost of Mr. Blackwell, these are the butt ugliest pieces of formal wear I've ever seen. I mean, sequins, boas, taffeta. Yellow, orange, and pink tuxedos with floppy bow ties. I'm no fashionista by any means, but I never want to hear anybody complaining about powder blue prom tuxedos ever again. I mean, the Croft brothers had to have known that color TV was surging in popularity by the mid-70s, right? Based on what I'm looking at, my eyes look like they're about to get questioned by SVU because they were just viciously attacked. And we're not even a full two minutes into the show. Maybe if I put on sunglasses as I watch the rest of it. Maybe a splash into a highly chlorinated swimming pool will help my eyes burn less after what I saw, as the Croftettes enter and do what they were paid to do by imitating Esther Williams. And if you don't know who that is, please ask your grandparents. What the song Babyface has to do with synchronized swimming is anybody's guess. If I were to theorize, perhaps maybe Sid and Marty Croft were throwing darts while blindfolded at a corkboard that had a bunch of random words on it, and this was the first result. Suddenly, they realized they had an extra dart to throw, and it lands on... Brady Bunch is singing Donna Summer's Love to Love You Baby. Jeez, you spend one hour with Donnie Marie and suddenly everybody wants to become the first couple of Utah. Or Arkansas. I mean, that's quite the jump to take on the spectrum of wholesomeness. To go from Q Family sitcom to disco sex ballad is one hell of a mood swing. Certainly this insanity has to end soon, right? You've got the cutest little baby face, baby face. As a series of water fountains pisses all over our favorite family, we then get our first attempt at comedy, as Florence Henderson determines how the show gets kicked off, as though the polyester fashion rape we just witnessed wasn't enough of a starting point. We have to decide who's going to talk first. Hey, I'll go first. I know exactly what I want to Wait a minute. Your mother's right. We have to decide who's going to talk first. How? Well, we'll do just like we do at home. 
Just then, one of those take-a-number counters that you find at delis drops down from the sky. With eight Brady, this is the only fair way to decide who eats first, who talks first, or who gets the bathroom. Mother, how could you? Now everybody knows! My sister Jan doesn't want anyone to know we even have a bathroom. That's okay. Nobody wants to know that you have a second sister named Jan. Life's tough. Wear a helmet. From there, we find out the reason why the show is even existing in the first place. For that answer, we turn to the man who swore he would never do another Brady-related project ever again. What I really am is an architect, and my family wanted this variety show. You know, it was their idea. I I didn't want to do it, but, uh, well, I love my family. So, now, I'm an entertaining architect. (laughs) He's dying. Oh, what? Hey, Jan, you've only been on TV for four minutes. You don't even know what death is yet. But yes, Mike Brady's explanation is the fabricated reason why there is a Brady Bunch hour in the first place, aside from money. The family wanted to get into show business. So, there they are. Just poof, and they're in show business with no further rhyme or reason. At least not yet. I'm sure there's a more detailed explanation in there somewhere. Floho then proceeds to reintroduce the rest of the family, starting with Barry Williams' Greg, who, by the by, the producers wanted the show to position as the program's major demographic drawing talent. You've got the cutest little baby face. You've got... Greg, not yet. (laughs) Music is my life. Okay, maybe not here, but maybe if you wait about 20 years or so. Listen, Barry, buddy. Former Brady. Listen, I've been in the music business a long time, okay? Nothing happens overnight, okay? Moving on to Maureen McCormick, a.k.a. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! Who, oddly enough, looks like a young Sybil Shepherd in her late teenage form. Hi, everybody! Who said that? Who said that? But she's still her daddy's little girl. I told you not to let her wear that dress. Her pinafore's still at the cleaners. Next, Peter Brady, played once again by Christopher Knight who, by the way, was reluctant to do the show due to his own admitted lack of singing skills. I think he's majoring in girls. Peter. Yes, Mom? Say hello, Peter. Hello. We then get a formal introduction to fake Jan, which, not unlike the Dukes of Hazard welcoming Coy and Vance Duke, is treated as though she's been a part of the family for years, even though America is simultaneously wondering... What the hell is that? It's all going wrong. Why couldn't I have been one of the Waltons? She's at that emotional age. I am not! She is not. Well, credit where credit's due. At least she can complain like Eve Plum's Jan. But perhaps she needs to dial it down a little. Finally, we get Mike Lookinland's Bobby and Susan Olsen's Cindy trying to splinter themselves off into their own Donnie and Marie-style act. Hi, I'm Bobby Brady, and I grew two and a half inches this year. And I'm Cindy Brady, and I grew three and a half inches this year. You know, for a girl her size, she's very weird. Would you like to eat your teeth? How would you like to sit on a frog? My babies, they're so close. With that much of a brief introduction, we finally get into our first sketch, which goes into further explanation of just how the whole architect Coombe showbiz transition comes about. Oh, we get a reprise of Babyface. Oh, no, please, not on our account. Anyway, the show finally starts with a family gathering in what is now their new home, trading in their famous, recently renovated home in Studio City, California, with a more plush set piece. The family discusses just how this can all work out with one obvious weak link. I know he wasn't the greatest, but he's your father. He loves you. Don't you love him? Of course we love him. We love him. Bobby? Mom, you know I love him. He's my dad. But we gotta dump him. I'm not exactly sure if this qualifies as a case of life imitates art. After all, we mentioned earlier that Robert Reed was very much anti-Brady, even though he remained a professional about it over the years. And that he said yes to doing the show, even though by his own admission, he's more of a classically trained actor instead of a showman. 
This sketch, on the other hand, may feel like it's telegraphing that point a little too thick. Mom, aluminum foil sings better than he does. Yeah, he doesn't swim too well either. The absolute pits. What do my friends think? Oh, I could just roll up in a little ball and die. Jeez, what's with fake Jan's constant death wish? It's almost as though she feels awkward about filling in for an established performer or something. Okay, now wait just a minute. Your father never wanted to do this show in the first place. It was your idea. And he is trying. He's even going to dance class. You think he likes that? Do you think your father enjoys wearing tights? The family continues to argue over whether to keep Hob Rady in the group, when suddenly... Hello? It's Felix Unger shows up for seemingly no other reason than to be our obligatorily shoehorned-in guest star. And yes, I know, a variety show would be nothing without guest stars. But it's the way they're forced into these shows, especially ones from the 1970s, that seems to raise the eyebrows of creativity. And even more especially when said guest star just, quote, happens to be in the neighborhood for the most banal of reasons. Of course, in this case, the justification for Tony Randall to be here in the first place is so that the show tries to be a show within a show. Well, I'm going to be the guest on your show this week, and I thought I'd pick up my script. Oh, the script isn't ready yet, Tony. I've still got some work to do on it. You must be Bobby, huh? That's right, Tony. Mm, good. I'll call you Bobby. You may call me Mr. Randall. Because the Brady kids are blown away by just how professional Randall is, they want him to replace their own father as the Brady's new patriarch. Much to an eavesdropping Mike's chagrin. I think it's great. Mike? No, 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 really. Oh. I, I think you'd make a, a terrific Mike Brady. Oh, Mike, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. Oh. I, I don't know what to say. Oh, just say... Hi, honey, I'm home. Ultimately, Randall doesn't want the role anyway, and would go on to do his own self-titled sitcom for two years. Bobby expresses his disappointment. Tony? Mr. Randall? Mr. Randall? I think you're chicken. Well, up your nose with a rubber hose. Up your nose with a rubber hose. I think that's how they test you for COVID-19. But seriously, the sketch wraps itself up with the signature twee that the original episodes were famous for. Maybe you'll get better. And you are a great dad. And nobody says, hi, honey, I'm home, quite like you do. And, well, Dad, we love you. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. That's my bunch. And I'll be honest, I'm a little perplexed here. To put things in perspective, we've been consulting TV Guide's 2002 list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time during this season of Telehell. Last week, we covered Pink Lady and Jeff, a show that reached number 35 on the list. The week before that, we covered My Mother the Car, which ranked at number 2 on the list, right behind Jerry Springer at number 1. Even some of the shows that we already covered months earlier, like Super Train, You're in the Picture, and Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire, ranked 28th, 9th, and 25th, respectively. The Brady Bunch Variety Hour is also on this list at number four. That's right, only two steps behind My Mother the Car. And just like My Mother the Car, I find myself asking whether or not the Brady's positioning on this list is justified, even if we've only seen 15 minutes of the show so far. I mean, yeah, the show gets off to a cheesy start, and the fashion choices are enough to make my eyeballs melt. But something has to be exceptionally questionable in order for this show to earn some of the scorn that it's picked up over the years. Hell, the next thing that happens is another musical number in eye-raping fashions while paying tribute to Bob Fosse. One, two, singular sensation, every little step he takes. I can't exactly fault this show based on how people are dressed. This isn't Studio 54, and I'm not Steve Rubell. And besides, despite some missteps in both choreography and music keys, the group is trying their best here. Nothing that would make this show worthy of being number four on TV Guide's list. One singular sensation, every little step he takes. Commonly rare, very unique, peripatetic, poetic, and chic. A continuing reminder that Robert Reed, self-described classically trained actor and self-professed actor who isn't good at singing and dancing, turns out not to be good at singing or dancing. Combination, every move that he makes. It with charisma is 
Granted, there is a wide swath between playing King Lear in drama school and having more sequence on him than a model at a boat show, but even the most classically trained of actors should know their limitations. Not everybody can be Nicolas Cage, and I'm certain that even he wouldn't be against doing stuff like this. Watch me strut, muster. I can't get enough. Son of a gun. We return to the Brady's second home for our next act, where Marsha, Marsha, Marsha lodges a complaint to Greg. Daddy, look what he just did to my new Led Zeppelin album. <laughs> Oh, I lighten up. When Dad was our age, his dad probably bent Elvis Presley in half. Come on, Daddy was never our age. Oh, sure he was. Mom was too. This leads up to the introduction of a piece where the Bradys imagine life in the 1950s. Possibly because ABC had not one, but two hit shows on in prime time that also took place in the 1950s. And that Grease was only two years away from becoming one of two things Alan Carr would accomplish in his career. Suffice to say, nostalgia for the decade was palpable back then. So, why not ride the crest of an existing wave? I wonder what it was really like. They'd get together every Friday night, and go in, and then when they had songs, they'd listen to them. The scene starts with the four men skating all together, yet they were all alone. But um, but um, bum. Well, Ricky, you uh, dig the action? Yeah, man, you've been around. How do you rate Roxy's Rollerama rink, Ricky? Right, right. I mean, like, look at it. It's Death Valley and wheels here. Until the one day when the ladies meet the fellas. And it's just now starting to hit me that they're going to be romantic interests in this sketch. Even though they are clearly actors who are playing siblings, who are playing actors, who are playing love interests. And suddenly, the race for first couple of Utah just heated up. Wow, would you look at them four unholy rollers. 32 whaling wheels of wonderful, strict contraction action. How would you know? Hickey is still wet behind a ducktails. Okay, pause it. I can't be the only one who finds this unsettling, right? Yes, I know, they're actors. And yes, some of them did hook up in real life because they're actors who are not related to each other. I understand that part. But here, they're still portraying stepbrothers and stepsisters regardless of who spawned whom. And this is supposed to be a family show. I can't be the only one who thinks this is inherently wrong somehow. Hey, Dizzy, they're looking at us! Look at us! Once again, they're playing brothers and sisters. I mean, unless this show is deliberately trying to play itself to the Deep South, this is a thing that should not be. How would you like to go steady? Steady? Oh, I'm crazy about you. Why do you keep hitting me? You know what they say, you always hurt the one you love. Well, so far, so good on that promise. Just as long as no other members of the family does any hooking up. Just then, the first couple of Utah show up to lay their blessing on this enterprise. Shaboom can't be your, our son. Hey, who stands? Says the Dons. Oh, yeah. Hey, there's only one person in the entire world who's worthy of the nickname the Dons. And he earned it by posting up clips of David Letterman on YouTube. He knows who he is. Then tell us what our song is. How about... Splish, splash. Splish, splash is our song? So naturally, this leads into our third embarrassing musical number of the show. A performance of the only rock song that Bobby Darren ever did. It goes just about as well as you think it does. And before you ask yourself how it's physically possible to tap dance while roller skating, we move on to the next act, where Greg and Peter get some use out of the show's superfluous swimming pool. I'm supposed to be talking by myself here, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, I figured when your feet got wet, you wouldn't feel much like talking. What are you talking about? My feet aren't wet. A random attempt at some comedy that segues itself into what looks like a piece about firefighters and... Bones! 
fuck am I looking at? Whatever it is that I'm looking at, not only am I now convinced of why TV Guide placed this show at number four on their worst shows list, but I have to wonder if, if Stephen King was watching this by accident and it inspired him to write it. No, 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 no. I take that back. Even Stephen King can't be this cruel. Um, maybe John Wayne Gacy watched this by mistake and that triggered his compulsion to kill. No, 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 no. I take that back, too. It, that, that, that's too far. Um, maybe screenwriters, the Shioto brothers, got high as balls one night, saw this, and then got inspired to write their screenplay for killer clowns in outer space. Still no? Well, somebody please give me a justification as to why the flying fuck this demented art house version of bobbing for apples is happening. Why is Mrs. Brady letting two of her sons drown her? Why are the sons dressed up as off-brand Raggedy Andy rejects? Why do they keep rewinding and fast-forwarding the footage? Why are there so many close-ups of these monstrosities invading my personal space? And more importantly, why is there the sound of people laughing at this? Did we learn nothing from our episode about the laugh track? This performance piece lasts for 100 seconds of your life that you will, sadly, never get back. Please, let's move on to something else. Why do I always have to land on Yugoslavia? Want to trade for Albania? No thanks. Oh, thanks, Satan. The family is playing a board game. Granted, that's tonal whiplash to the nth degree, but anything is better than watching whatever the hell that just was with the clowns. We return to the Brady's second home, where Mike and Carol are playing a board game. Possibly the second kinkiest thing they'll do this episode. Where a quip about landing on East Germany... What's important is I just landed on East Germany and your mother already owns it. ...becomes Peter's excuse to break off a date. Well, it's my dad. They're holding him in East Germany and we're trying to get him out. It's a shock to us, too. We thought he was in Burbank. Hilarity ensues. But really, who the hell cares after seeing the nightmare factory that we saw a few minutes ago? I swear, all the lobotomies in the world can't make me forget that. We then get an intro to a Greg Brady solo piece by the youngest of the bunch, who once again tries to pass themselves off as the one-calorie diet brand of the Osmond siblings. Our oldest brother Greg is a great singer. We're really proud of him. We think he's going to be very famous. Like a famous singing banana. <laughs> Please be quiet. As we segue ourselves into Barry Williams' first major showcase, we also get the reminder that this was an attempt by both ABC and the Crofts to pin him down as the reason why people wanted to tune in, not just for nostalgia purposes. Greg Brady belts out his first ballad and... Everything has its season, everything has its time, show me... And people head for the bathroom in record time. I mean, wow, did the network bet on the wrong horse here. I'm sure to a certain demographic this might have been some semblance of appealing to somebody, but I can't imagine the 18 to 49 demographic of the 1970s finding this groovy, especially considering the only other music he's done before attempting to be a pop star was on the stage. I'm no impresario, but there's a big difference between singing in musicals and singing for the pop charts. There isn't going to be that much of an overlap between fans. And if there is one, it's going to be razor thin. Of course, if his pop career never pans out, which, spoiler alert, it doesn't, there's always the yet-to-be-discovered world of hip-hop in the 2000s. I'll spare you the lack of tone as we move on to something not quite as horrifying as the water clowns on parade. Peter and Mr. Brady in hilariously embarrassing outfits. Peter, you're a chicken. Don't rub it in. Right now I'm mad enough to eat Kentucky Fried People. Another friendly reminder that we are only two years away from the events of Soiling Green, as Tony Randall comes back because, according to Mr. Brady, it was Randall's request to have people dress up in costumes to read a poem. Sweet, fancy Moses hilarity ensues over the misunderstanding. Tony, what's going on here? Peter's a chicken. I'm a rabbit. Yes, Mike? <laughs> you don't know why we're dressed like this? Well, whatever you do in your personal life is your own affair. Craig then enters dressed as a bear. Who's driving? Oh my god, bear's driving. How can that be? Now knock that off. 
Randall thinks all the frivolity is as ridiculous as Aristophanes when he performs his poem disguised as a song about... Close-ups, will ya? You're making me pine for the inane clown posse of swimmers again. My whiskers that tra-la-la-la trap the bears. Where the waves seem chiming haycocks. I dance the polka. There's Dan Venus's children in the gay frocks. Maroon and marine and snare. To see me fire my pistol through the... I wish I was a drug addict. Because it's probably the only way I can accurately or even adequately describe what I'm looking at right now. Clearly, Tony Randall is rehearsing for his part as Mr. Moochick in the 1980s My Little Pony movie about ten years before it happened, while a bunch of lost souls in woodland creature costumes prance around him. In fact, I'm convinced that one of them was the creature William Shatner saw in the wing of his airplane once. So, the bright foxy deer, but he finds fresh isles and the necrosis smiles, the foxy doxy deer, as they watch me dance the vodka, said Mr. Wag like a bear. Not only that, but this whole number feels like Randall might be telling us that he was a furry enthusiast back in the day. And that might be only the second most disturbing thing I've seen so far in this show. Second only to... Never play that part again for the love of all that is evil. Thankfully, we got that bit of disturbia out of our minds with an appearance by everybody's favorite maid. You know, I've been with the Bradys for a long time. I've watched them grow up. I saw those kids get taller every year. And I saw that whole family grow up with a very special kind of love for each other. Whenever I think about the Bradys, I think about that love. And before you think to yourself that Alice is going to be doing the singing here, thankfully she's not, as we get to the arguable highlight of the episode. Yesterday, goodbye. The sweetness and the sorrow been many things wrong with this show so far. Florence Henderson is not one of those things. Sure, she may be chewing the scenery in this song like a famine victim, and another musical number marks the second chance to take a bathroom break, but unlike Barry Williams, she's actually performing the hell out of this medley of the songs and she's much more convincing when she does so. Granted, she's got years and years of stage work under her belt, but it's still a hell of a lot more practice and persistence than Greg tried to show us earlier, which sort of begs an easy question. Why couldn't Henderson have the show to herself? Clearly, it's because the Brady's as a larger whole was much more marketable and getting the entire family back on TV sounded much more lucrative on paper. And that's unfortunate because it means there would be far less moments of actual quality to be seen. And considering just how little quality we've been seeing so far, this performance feels like an oasis in the midst of a barren wasteland of a cheap cash-in. Unfortunately, despite the nice moment we just experienced, there's still about eight minutes left, and you can't wrap up a 70s variety show without going over the top. That being said, prepare yourselves as the family tries to agree on just how they plan on ending the show. No way! Giving me a hand. I want to have that dumb old song on my show. The little white cloud that cried, dumb? Just then, Alice comes back to do what she always did best help save the day. What do you want us to do? Sing something, dummy. Anything. (laughs) These kids are so out of it. What follows is a sequined sequence of events that schizophrenics would look at and think to themselves that they're having a normal day, as we see possibly the strangest mashup of songs ever filmed by TV cameras. Simply put, the parents want to sing old stuff, while the kids want to sing the hip music that fellow kids are into these days. Regardless of what it is they're singing, there is one common thread involved here. Oh, this show is crap. There's a new kind of dancing It's gonna be the rain Just move yourself behind Like an actor on a stage We begin with Greg in an Elvis outfit that the king probably sold to him in the final year of his life. All the while, he and the Croftettes perform a series of moves that look like a massive circle jerk without the circle. 
We then cut to Ma and Pa Brady performing an old-timey song set to a beat that's far from era-appropriate. And before the image of all the other Brady kids slow dancing with each other makes me want to re-question the questions I asked myself earlier in the 50s roller skating sketch, it is my profound pleasure to present to you Telehell's newest ringtone, uncut in its entirety. Because we all deserve equal pain. Hope you were paying attention, because if you ever hear that sound ever again around here, it's probably because either the boss is calling or someone from the outside world somehow got the number to this place. Either way, consider it a tune of doom. I could go on about this number, but all that's left of them is shaking their booty to shake your booty, including Alice joining in and pretending to keep up with the rest of them. But unlike Robert Reed's constant misstepping, Alice's is fully intentional. And so we reach the end of the show. Florence and the gang express their thank yous, and the show wraps up with a reprise of The Way We Were. And when all was said and done, the show, though highly questionable in a number of places... I told you never to play that again! Despite there being more cheese, cringe, and awkwardness than allowed by law, the show turned out to be the highest-rated program to air that weekend of Thanksgiving 1976. So much so that ABC would fast-track a full series starting later that January of 1977, one that would only last an additional eight episodes. But thanks, Satan, we don't have to look at any more of these shows. Because just looking at one is enough to drive you to the brink of madness while still maintaining enough strength to gain that sanity back. That being said, where does the Brady Bunch Variety Hour... Uh... Uh... What? Where does the Brady... Uh, uh, hang on, folks. I gotta take this. Hello? Telehelp? Slow down there, honey. Were you about to wrap things up? Yes, I was. We were about to reach the nine circles. Well, before you do, the boss just alerted me to a discrepancy on your progress this season and that you can't wrap things up until you cover them. Discrepancy? Something about Jim Belushi's sitcom? Yeah, I thought we went over that. I couldn't do the show due to... Do you know... Oh, yeah. The one that got away. The boss is still kicking himself for not creating the coronavirus. He's been super moody about it ever since. I don't blame him. He probably lost out on a big bonus, too. Well, try not to rub that part in. The last demon who brought that up wound up getting resurrected as hot dog water at a food cart in Estonia. Also, there was something else that the boss was waiting for you to do. Something about Bill Cosby? Cosby? What the... Oh, now I remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember getting a lightning strike when I mentioned him all the way back in episode 3 last year. Okay, now I get it. Now I know what it was. Uh, I was planning on doing uh, his short-lived detective show, The Cosby Mysteries, but I had to replace that one with the history of the movie of the week back in February. Largely because I wasn't sure if it would be in good taste to make Cosby jokes right about now. Oh, yeah. I heard that one. Very informative. Too bad you labeled it as a bonus episode and not a proper one. So, by all count, you're still two episodes short of your order this year. Well, what do you want me to do? I'm covering the season finale. There's no other shows to cover after this. Not exactly. You still need to make up for your lost episodes before we can declare the season complete. Now, by our estimate, the Belushi shows you were supposed to cover were two half hours. 
Well, Cosby Mysteries is an hour-long show, so by our count, you owe us two hours worth of criticism, or 90 minutes if you remove the commercials. And one of our messengers is bringing you two episodes of the show right about now. Good luck, honey. Well, wait, wait. Well, whatever it is, it can't be as bad as the Brady Bunch hour. No, 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 no. I am not going through this a second time. Next time on Telehell, we finish the season with two additional episodes of the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, or Die Trying. Oh, wait a minute, I'm already dead. Well, maybe die the same way fake Jan keeps talking about. Oh, I can just roll up in a little ball and die! Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop.